For me, it was living proof that God keeps his promises. I had waited a lifetime for the hope of the world to arrive. And just when it seemed that the prophecy would die along with me, I heard the cry of salvation coming from, from an obscure little town. The only thing more powerful than expectant hope is fulfilled hope. It gave me permission to die in peace, but more importantly, it gave people everywhere the possibility to live with peace. If you want to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, I have one last message in this series that we've entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told. And we're going to begin reading in just a little while in verse 21, and we're going to get through verse 35, or at least an overview of some of those verses. And I I want you to follow along with me today as we continue thinking about uh, the birth uh, of the Savior. You realize that a baby changes everything? You remember when your first child came along and it changed your whole life? I mean, for the good. But for the challenges as well, it changed your whole life. But never did life change in the way that it changed when Jesus was born. I think about some of the ways that Jesus changed life. He changed the view of the world about children. Did you know that in the ancient world, children were routinely left to die of exposure, particularly if they were girls? But Jesus' treatment of and teaching about children led to the forbidding of these kinds of practices and to the establishing of places that we call orphanages. There was even a Norwegian scholar who wrote a study about this impact, and he simply titled his study, When Children Became People, the Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Jesus' birth changed education. In the ancient world, they loved education, but it was mainly kept for those who were the elite of the day. But it was the notion that every child that's born is born with God's image that fueled the move for universal literacy. Universities such as Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard, at least initially, all began as Jesus-inspired efforts to love God with all one's mind. Jesus changed, his coming changed the whole attitude about compassion. Uh, Jesus' compassion for the poor and the sick led to institutions for the lepers. Began what we know today are the modern day hospitals. And that's why even today we have hospitals with names like Good Samaritan or Good Shepherd or St. Mary's. They were the world's first voluntary charitable institutions. Or he changed the world by his birth about the matter of humility. Humility in the ancient world was not considered a virtue. It wasn't something that was valued. And yet Jesus came washing the feet of others as a servant. And it ultimately led to the adoption of humility as a widely admired virtue. Historian John Dixon writes, It's unlikely that any of us would aspire to to this virtue, the virtue of humility, were it not for the historical impact of his crucifixion. 
Jesus' birth changed the world as to forgiveness. In the ancient world, virtue meant rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. But there was an alternative idea that came out of Galilee, and it came from the person of Jesus Christ who taught us to love our enemies and to seek to be reconciled to them whenever that's possible. Jesus' coming changed the whole attitude about humanitarian reform. Jesus was constantly championing those that were the excluded of society. He didn't approve of their sins, but he was always reaching out to them. The inclusion, for instance, of women that led to the community which flocked in disproportionate numbers to the early church, or slaves, of which about a third of the ancient population was made up of They would wander into a church fellowship and they would have slave owners washing the feet rather than beating them. Even an ancient text instructed bishops to not interrupt worship to greet a wealthy attender, but to sit on the floor to welcome the poor. And so you get the idea that a baby changes everything. Those children that came to our lives changed our lives in significant ways, but the baby that was born in Bethlehem changed the world in ways that's still occurring 2,000 years later. Not everybody recognized the significance of the person that was born on Christmas Day. Not everybody understood all that was going on, but there were some who did. There was Zacharias and Elizabeth. They understand that the long-awaited Messiah had, had, was, was on his way, was going to arrive. Their son was going to be the precursor. He was going to be the one who prepared the way for his arrival. Mary and Joseph understood the significance to some degree of the child that was given to them came through the womb of the Virgin Mary, Joseph, the adoptive father, the one who gave him the legal right to the throne of David. They were told by the angel that this was going to be a special child and there was something significant that God was going to do through the life of this one. You have other characters that are in the Scripture, such as Simeon and Anna. They're found here in the last part of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, Uh, These two seemingly older, one of them we know was older, the other we think was older, these two older individuals were among the first to be able to see uh, the Christ child after he was born, even before the wise men arrived and brought their gifts. It was Simeon and Anna who proclaimed that this child has changed everything and will change everything. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about Simeon. We won't get to the story of Anna. But we're talking about this man, Simeon. And the reality is we don't know a whole lot about him other than what's given to us in Luke chapter 2. We don't know his vocation. He might have been a priest or he might have been a prophet. He hung out around the temple an awful lot. So he was either a priest or he was a prophet. We don't really know his age, though it's inferred from something that he will say, and you'll read in just a few minutes, that he might have been advanced in years, as was, uh, as was Anna, advanced in years. 
But we don't know that for certain. He might not have been as old as we think that he is. Nevertheless, he was old enough to recognize that the one who was born in Bethlehem was someone very special. What we do know about Simeon is that he loved the Lord. He was the man who was devout. He was a man who had a great love for God. He was a man who obeyed the law. He was a man who sought a relationship, a living relationship with the Almighty God. We know that he sings the last of the Christmas carols that are found in the Gospel of Luke. You, you remember them? Uh, Zacharias will sing a Christmas carol. Mary will sing a Christmas carol. The angels sing a Christmas carol. And then you come to Simeon, and he's going to sing the last of the four songs that are recorded in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And when does he do it? He does it just after he takes the baby in his arms, and he holds the baby up, and he recognizes the significance that this child changes everything. And he breaks out into a song of praise. In order to see his life, we need to walk through this particular passage of Scripture and try to understand some of what it's telling us so that we can appreciate the truth that's presented here. Jesus now has been born. Uh, he's been laid in the manger. He's been nurtured and cared for by his mother and by his stepfather, Joseph, and it's interesting what it says. There's going to be some rituals now that have to be performed related to the baby that was born. The first one is found in verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Every boy that was born eight days after his birth was circumcised. It was what God commanded of the Jewish people all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 in verse 12. Every baby boy that came into the world was to be circumcised. God gave specific laws related to how this was to be done and the timing of it to be done in Leviticus chapter 12, about verses 1 to 6. All of it was intended to show the covenant promise that God had with the nation of Israel. This was the physical sign of the covenant promise so that every child that was generated from this man would come into this covenant promise. They would be a part of Israel. They would be a part of the nation of Israel. And eight days after his birth was that ritual performed on the baby Jesus. And at the Performing of that ritual, that was the time that the name was given. You know, when our children were born, probably like when your children were born, one of the first things they ask you is, what's the name? And they start putting things on the birth certificate and putting footprints, you know, and handprints on the birth certificate, as are on the birth certificates for our children. But the first thing you did when you had gone through the process of circumcision was to name the child, and the name was no surprise, was it? It means that he is the Savior. He is the one who has come to save. It comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. Jehovah, Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus is the Savior who has come. And they name him as the angels had told them to name him. In ritual one, prescribed by the law, is completed. The second ritual begins in verse 22, now when the days of her, that's Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were completed, 
They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I first want you to notice how many times he uses the phrase, the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. You find it in verse 22, according to the law of Moses. You find it again in verse 23, as it's written in the law of the Lord. You find it again in verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Or when you get over to verse 27, the very last phrase, according to the custom of the law. Or when you get to verse 39, according to the law of the Lord. In other words, they are following the law of God fastidiously. They're making sure that they are obedient to the Lord. And would you expect anything less from Mary and Joseph who were devout followers of the one true God, the almighty God? They are seeking to obey him and to do what he has commanded all of them to do and what takes place. When it comes to the days of her purification being completed, that's 33, 33 days later. There's seven days. On the eighth day, there's the circumcision. And counting the day of circumcision, 33 more days. So that there's 40 days that have now passed. And they make the journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, a six to eight mile journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, they're going to do for him according to the law. What they have to do when they arrive is they have to offer a sacrifice. Generally, this service of of purification, this service that would declare Mary was now ceremonially clean and could participate in the community of faith again, it would involve the offering of a lamb and a turtle dove. But you'll notice that when Mary and Joseph come, they don't have the lamb. They're carrying the lamb, aren't they? He is the lamb. But more significantly, they don't have a lamb because they're not of the upper class of that day. They're not of the elite of that day. Here's another evidence that the wise men have not yet arrived. If they had already been there, there would have been gold and frankincense and myrrh, wouldn't there? There would have been something they could have turned in to cash, but they didn't have the money to purchase the lamb. And they purchased what is, in essence, the sacrifice of those who are poor. And they bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons and they offer them as the sacrifice. And thus, Mary in this second ritual is declared to be ceremonially clean and able to go back to normal life as you would think uh, of normal life. Now, no new mother has a normal life with a new baby, right? I mean, (laughs) right, ladies? I mean, there's a lot of things to be done in caring for a baby, but as far as the ceremonial aspect of the law and being accepted back into the community, Mary was now accepted back into the community. And then there was, according to the law, the price of redemption that had to be paid. The firstborn son had to be offered to to God. Lord, I give you back. I give back to you the son that you've given to us. And then they would pay five shekels. And they would redeem that son back. And those five shekels would go for the, uh, the ongoing of the Levitical system, caring for the Levites. And they would take the baby back and they would raise that son. It would be a little bit like what we do with dedication. Coming and saying, Lord, you've given this gift. Now I give this gift back to you. 
And then the Lord says, I want you to take that gift and I want you to raise that gift in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so they go through these three very specific uh, rituals that are laid out and accomplished according to the law. Jesus is going to be the only one who can fulfill the law in its entirety. And even in his infancy, when he couldn't do it for himself in the human form, he couldn't do it for himself, his mother and his father are seeing to it that the law is followed exactly as God has laid it out. Because ultimately, Jesus will fulfill every aspect of the law. He'll cross every T and he'll dot every I. But it's as they're coming to perform these last two specific rituals, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, that they come to the temple. They can't go beyond the court of the women because Mary is with them. But they come to the court of the women and they come in contact with a man whose name is Simeon. You notice verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, I want you to notice some things about him. And this man was just and devout. He was just in that he was righteous. He had believed in the God of heaven. He was trusting in the God of heaven, and he was righteous, and he was devout, meaning he was yielded to God. He was devoted to his will. I don't know how many days that he had been coming. We're not told how long before this that he heard about the Messiah coming to the temple and that he was going to have an encounter with the Messiah. We're not told how long before. It seems to me that it was some amount of time, some considerable amount of time that probably uh, uh, went by before this actually occurred. And so you can see Simeon coming to the temple day after day. Can you see him seeing new mothers as they walk toward the temple? They're, they're fulfilling the law on behalf of their children as well, and maybe they've got them all wrapped up in a blanket, and he walks over to those children that are being held by one of the parents, and maybe he pulls back the blanket just to be able to look at the child that's inside to see if this is the one that God had told him about. But he comes again and again, whether he's a priest or whether he's a prophet really isn't uh, that important to us at this moment. He simply comes every single day looking for that one that God said he was going to see. God had told him, you're going to see him before you die. That's the reason why we think he may have been an old man. God kept him alive, coming to the temple again and again, knowing that he was going to die ultimately, but not until he had first seen the Messiah that had long been promised. He was a man who was just and devout. You'll notice, secondly, it says about him that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I'm not going to take you back to the book of Isaiah, but numerous times in the book of Isaiah, he talks about the consolation of Israel. It's the word for comforter. In other words, he's talking about the Messiah. The consolation of Israel is the Messiah is going to be, be brought into the world. He's going to console you Jewish people. He's going to come to you as your redeemer. And he had been told to wait for the consolation of Israel. And he waited expectantly, coming to the temple again and again, looking for the baby that had been promised. You know, that expectancy, can you imagine what that was like? You know, if you go down here to Coles and you see me sitting in the parking lot, 
and you come over to me in the parking lot and you say, Pastor, what are you doing? And I, I say, well, I just came up here to sit for a little while. I just, I just came up to spend some time in the parking lot of Coles. Or if you see me down at the hospital and uh, you, you see me sitting in my car and you come up to me and you say, Pastor, what are you doing at the hospital? I just want to be close in case something happens. I just want to be close in case something happens. You, you might ought to call somebody with a straight jacket and say, you know, the ones with a zipper up the back and say, you need to come help this man. He's in serious trouble. If I'm at Coles or I'm at the hospital, it's because there's somebody important inside, and I'm waiting on them. And Simeon waited outside that temple day after day, maybe a few days, maybe a lot of days, because he knew that there was somebody important who was coming, and he was waiting for the important one to come, who was the consolation of Israel. And then you'll notice it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. If you're keeping notes, the first note you want to make is that he was a spirit-filled man. The Spirit was upon him. Please note that the Holy Spirit is all over chapters 1 and 2. Go back for a moment to chapter 1 and look at verse 15. Talking about John the Baptist speaking, the angels speaking to Zacharias, verse 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or if you move over to verse 41, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? Look over at verse 67. Now Zacharias, John the Baptist is filled. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. Verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to speak that beautiful song. And then three more times in this story of Simeon, we hear about the Holy Spirit again and again. Listen, don't forget, God the Father is in heaven. God the Son has been born through the womb of Mary. And God the Holy Spirit is right here in the middle of the whole scene. The Trinity is all here. As when we baptize someone, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here at the very beginning, and he's a Spirit-filled man. When we talk about somebody being Spirit-filled, we're not talking about ecstatic utterances. We're not talking about people doing bizarre things. We're talking about somebody who is living his or her life under the control of the Spirit of God. They are yielded and surrendered to the control of the Spirit of God in their lives. Can I just tell you that this is an important truth for every one of us that we can learn from the life of Simeon. One of the key ingredients to a successful, victorious Christian life is not living according to the flesh but it's living according to the Spirit of God, living in a yieldedness, in a surrender to God where the power of God is on you and the power of God is in you and the power of God is enabling you because when he talks about being filled, he's talking about being filled to overflowing so that he controls you. He controls you in your life. I would tell you that one of the most important things that I'm still working on and one of the most important things you can work on is to learn what it means to be controlled by the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, you ought to master that chapter because he talks about walking in the Spirit. 
And then he goes on to say, when you walk in the Spirit, then you produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness, against which he says there is no law. It's something that God produces in us, and we ought to learn to practice the truths that are found in Galatians 5, but we ought to learn to practice the truths that are found in Ephesians 5. He says to be filled with the Spirit of God. He goes on to say we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms are scriptures that we sing. Hymns are didactic teaching kind of songs like we sing out of our hymn book. And spiritual songs are the songs like we sang at the first part of this service that are songs of praise to God. And it all comes out of a spirit-filled life where we're singing from our hearts. And to whom are we singing? We're singing to one another. And we're singing to the God of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about the relationship of husbands and wives and parents and children. Why? Because the, the filling of the Spirit of God isn't just good for church work. The, the filling of the Spirit of God is good uh, for everyday life and the relationships in which we live. We, we ought to learn to live in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Galatians chapter 5. We need to learn to live in Romans chapter 8 one of the greatest chapters in Scripture about the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a person like Simeon when you are controlled by and yielded to and surrendered to the work of the Spirit of God. It's an incredible passage. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who, walk, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. But here's what I want you to see. In verse 14, in verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You say, there it is, Pastor. That, that's the proof that we're children of God, that we live or are led by the Spirit of God. Absolutely, absolutely. But he's not talking at this particular moment about positional truth. He's talking here about practical truth. Just two verses before, he says, therefore, brethren. He's talking to people that are already saved. Being led by the Spirit of God is the evidence that we're being controlled by and yielded to the Spirit of God. We ought to learn to live in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 and Romans 8. We ought to learn to live in John 14 to 16. Jesus tells his disciples in those three chapters, if I don't go away, I won't send the comforter to you. But if I go away, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I'll send the comforter to you. And he'll not just be with you. He says he'll be where? He'll be in you. And here is a man who exemplifies what it means to be filled with the Spirit this man who was just and devout, this man who was expectancy, knowing that somebody important was going to arrive, a baby was going to be born that was going to change everything, is a man who is spirit-filled, a man who is under the control of. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he's yielded to the Spirit of God. When we get to this, the end of this service, I'm hoping that a fresh and a new today that you'll let the baby change everything for you. And you and I will become the men and the women 
who are spirit-filled men and women who say, oh God, live your life in us and through us, not by our ability, but by your supernatural ability and supernatural power. Amen? It goes on about him. He, the spirit was upon him, but then we learn secondly about him that he was spirit-taught, and it had been revealed to him how by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was a man that was not only living, yielded, and surrendered to the Spirit of God. Here is a man who was being taught by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was speaking to him. You understand that God is still doing that today? God, the Holy Spirit, is still working in our lives in that fashion today? Listen to what he says in John chapter 16. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but, will, but, but will ever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. What does he do? He guides us into all truth. Somebody says, I can't understand the Bible. First of all, I don't believe that. You read other books, and you understand what they say. The problem isn't you can't understand it. The problem is we don't apply ourselves to read it. And especially if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, because at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, and now you have the Holy Spirit not only to control you and fill you, you have the Holy Spirit to teach you what the Word of God says. Do you believe that? You have the Holy Spirit to teach you. Listen to what 1 John 2.27 says, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. You say, there it is, Pastor. I don't even need to be here today. I don't need your teaching. That's not what he's saying. If it meant that, he wouldn't have never given to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. He would have never told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. He would have never said to Timothy, preach the word. He would never have said any of those things about the instruction of the word of God. What was he saying? When it comes to truth and error, you don't have to have someone else show you. You have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that guides you into the truth so that you can expose and you can uh, recognize the error that's coming to you. Isn't it amazing how, how many people swallow the lies? They sound good. They're presented well. They're entertaining. But they're not the truth. And people don't even recognize it, and they drink the poison of the lies while the truth is overlooked completely. That's because there's someone who either doesn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in him or her, or someone who is not yielded to and surrendered to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God not only filled this man, the Spirit of God taught this man, and God teaches us the Word of God. It's those of you that are sitting in this room and those of you that are watching this service live and when you open the Word of God and you hear it taught in a systematic fashion, line upon line and precept upon precept, 
one verse after another verse and explain to you. There's a, there's a confirming voice within your own spirit, the spirit of God who is saying, that's the truth, that's the truth, that's the truth, that's the truth. He was a man who was spirit-filled. He was a man who was spirit-taught. But notice this man who's, who was told he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, what it says about him in verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the, the Christ child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. How did he know to come on that day? You say he'd been coming every day. Yeah, but there's something special about this particular day. He wasn't just filled with the Spirit of God and taught by the Spirit of God that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming. He was led on this day. He was a Spirit-led man. Isn't that what we all want in our lives? <laughs> Isn't that what we all want? We want a life where we are, we are yielded to God and God is, is leading us. Sometimes God moves in my spirit to do something and I stop what I'm doing and I do it. Sometimes God moves me not a, never opposed to his word, not opposed to what he teaches in the word, but God moves me. God moves you if you know it. If you recognize it, if you're sensitive to it, if you're living under the surrender and under the control and the yieldedness to the Spirit of God where he's teaching you the things of God and guiding you into the truth of God, you'll notice at times when God leads you to do something and you stop and you just do it because God led you to do it. Amen? You ever been walking or riding somewhere and God said, don't go that way? I don't mean out loud, not, vis not uh, audibly where you hear it with your ears. Nobody appeared in the car to you. There was no angel. That'd be a reason for a wreck right there. No angel appeared in the car, but in your heart of hearts, God was moving, and you stopped, and you went the different direction, or you did something different because you were being guided by the Spirit of God. And here was a man who was not only Spirit-filled and Spirit-taught, here was a man who was Spirit-led. Those that are led by the Spirit, he said, were what? The sons of God. Do you realize that being led by the Spirit of God is a display, not of your position in Christ, it's a display of your maturity in Christ. That's what he means. You're led by the Spirit of God in Romans 8. Those that are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's not about your salvation. Yes, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none of his. You're not his son. You're positionally not in Christ. But he was talking to brethren. Remember, I pointed it out. He was talking to brethren. He was talking when he says, if you're led by the, by the Spirit of God, you're the sons of God. He was talking about the maturity of the believer. You're displaying and you're demonstrating that you're more than just a body and a soul and a mind. But there's, you're someone who is indwelt by the presence of the Spirit of God who's leading you and you're following the Spirit of God. Shouldn't we get up every day desiring God to lead us today? God, take us where you want us to go. Help us to do what you want us to do. Let us say what you want us to say. He was a spirit-led man. He was spirit-filled, and he was spirit-taught, and he was spirit-led. But he does something interesting. As he goes into the temple, he pulls maybe that back the blanket of the, baby, of, of the baby Jesus, and he recognizes, led by the Spirit, 
empowered and enabled by the Spirit, he recognizes this is the long-awaited one. Now, I don't know about you. This is a different world. I understand that. And in, in our world, can you imagine somebody that you don't even know walking up to you in the court of the women and sweeping out of your arms their, your, your baby? First of all, someone you don't know even pulling back the blanket to see the face of the baby. You can't even get into the maternity ward unless you go through a process to make sure that you have a rightful place. And thank God they do that. After babies have been kidnapped and taken away, thank God they do that. We live in an un unusually evil world. But can you imagine coming to the temple and as you and Joseph holding your baby maybe covered up with the blanket to keep him as warm as possible, walk in, and this man that you don't even know who he is, he's maybe an older man, walks over to you, looks in, this is the one, this is the one, and sweeps the baby out of your arms. Mary and Joseph are watching it all. And suddenly we find that this man is not only spirit-filled and spirit-taught and spirit-led, we find this man is spirit-inspired. He's going to praise God, and then he's going to prophesy. Notice what he says, verse 29. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's why we think he might have been old. He's now ready to die. He's seen the long-awaited one. Your servant, depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen, what has it seen? Your salvation. Notice carefully, he's praising God, which you have prepared before the face of how many peoples? For whom is Jesus? Jesus is for all peoples. He goes on just to make sure you understand a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. But it's not just the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Who are the all people? It's Gentiles and it's Jews. That's everybody. And Jesus has come for everybody. And this man begins to give praise to God. He sings this song, this stranger to Joseph and Mary. As far as we know, they've never seen this man before. Steps into their presence, sweeps the baby out of their arms, and begins to praise God. This is God's salvation for all mankind. Oh, church, listen. We've got to get the name of Jesus to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. There isn't but one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that's the name Jesus. We've got to get the name Jesus to the Jews, and we've got to get the name Jesus to the Gentiles. We've got to get it to the east and to the west. We've got to get it to the north and to the south. We've got to make sure as many people as possible hear the name of Jesus. And this man, inspired by the Spirit of God, gives this incredible song. How incredible is this inspired song? It gets recorded in inspired Scripture. It gets written down. The fourth of the four songs that are recorded in chapters 1 and 2 is the song of Simeon as he sings the praises of God because the salvation of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're listening to my voice today, you, you need Jesus. 
Jesus is the only one who can change your life. Amen. Jesus has changed our lives. And Jesus is the only one who can change your life. Maybe sometimes we don't look too attractive and don't make Jesus look too attractive because of our own faults and our own failings, but look past us and see Jesus. Pull back the blanket, if you have to, of our faults and our failures and look at the face of the one, the baby that changes everything. And see him because he can change everything about you. He continues, he moves from praise to prophecy. Verse 33, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. I guess so. I mean, we've seen this before, them pondering and thinking about what they've been, what they've been seeing and what they've been told. And here they are again. They're marveling. It's the idea of, wow, can, can you believe this? Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, here comes his prophecy, this spirit-inspired man. He blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. I wonder if Mary thought about that when she was at the crucifixion scene. Did you notice he didn't say anything to Joseph here? Because apparently Joseph is dead. For how many years afterwards? I don't know. But some, at some point before Jesus gets into his ministry or very far into his ministry, Joseph is gone. But he says to Mary, there's going to be a sword that will pierce through your own soul. Do you understand what he's saying? There's going to be a pain so deep that you've never felt before. A pain it's going to hurt you deeper than any pain has ever hurt you. That the thoughts of many hearts, he says, may be revealed. Did you notice what he says here? He says, your child is going to be a dividing line. For some, your child is going to be a stepping stone. And for others, your child is going to be a stumbling block. It's for the fall and for the rising of many. Sometimes we don't truly understand the claims of Christ that they really, in fact, are scandalous. They cause people to stumble. We want everybody to like us. We want everybody to be our friend. We don't want anyone to ever be offended. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is a dividing line, sometimes within a family, often within a community, within a, within a nation. He's a dividing line. Some people accept him and some people reject him. This explains why some of our family members scorn our commitment to Christ. It explains why there is so much resistance to Christian truth on the secular college campus. It explains why other world religions are all united in their opposition to Christianity. This is the very thing that Jesus came to do to reveal the true inward condition of every heart, whether in faith or in unbelief. When people are opposed to Christians, it's because they're opposed to Christ. And whatever opposition we face is a sign that he is truly present 
with us. Have you discovered that no matter what you do, there's some people that just aren't going to like you? Because you're a Christian. Because you seek to live under the control of the Spirit of God. And they don't appreciate the values that you hold dear or the scripture that you follow wholeheartedly or your devotion to Almighty God or that you get up on a Sunday morning the day after Christmas in order to come to church. They don't appreciate it. They think you're a fool. But we know him to be the power of God to salvation. And there's a dividing line. Some of you are experiencing that in your own family. Some of you are experiencing that in your own neighborhood, in your own community, in your own workplace. We certainly are experiencing that in America. And we're seeing it across the world. In the prophecy, he says, the child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken. Notice the words, spoken against. And Mary, when you see it, it's going to drive a proverbial spear into your heart that's going to cause you to ache in ways you have never even imagined. Go with me to the crucifixion scene. See Jesus nailed to the cross. He's already swollen almost beyond recognition. The crown of thorns, his blood running down his face, his back is laid bare. And there hangs her son with nails in his hands and his feet. While people are gambling for his garment, while people are walking by and sneering and mocking. And she looks up at her son and she sees this intense suffering that he's enduring. Aren't you thankful that on the cross Jesus saw his mother and said, John, you take care of her. You take care of her. Jesus made sure that his mother was taken care of. But oh, how she must have hurt. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine what that mother was feeling at those moments? Can you imagine what it was like when he says, into your, into your hands I commend my spirit, and suddenly his eyes are closed and his body goes limp on the cross? Can you imagine what that must have felt like for that mother and for those days that followed? Any of you that have had the death of a child know exactly what I'm talking about. But you know where Mary was on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection? Mary was in the upper room with the 120 and she was praying and she was waiting for the coming of the Spirit of God and the birth of the church into existence. And this woman now gathered in a way that she never gathered before the significance, 
the centrality of her son. This is the Messiah. It took the resurrection for the brothers of Jesus to come to faith in Jesus. They didn't believe him at first either, not until the resurrection. And then they believed in Jesus, and his mother believed in Jesus. But oh, the pain she must have felt. And we're introduced to a man named Simeon who said he's come to be our salvation. Can I just give you three practical steps? Because we're talking about a man who is a spirit-filled, spirit-taught, spirit-led, spirit-inspired kind of a man. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be a whole lot more like that? First of all, number one, surrender yourself to God. Just surrender yourself to God. Just give yourself to the Lord. Say, Lord, I surrender myself. It may be that you have to get up every day and you have to say, Lord, it will be. But you have to get up every day. You have to say, Lord, this tongue and these lips, I yield them to you. And Lord, I, hope, I pray that you'll help me to speak the kind of words that will honor you this day. Lord, these feet are your feet, and I pray that these feet will take me today, that you'll lead me and take me with these feet where you want me to be, to stand with those where you want me to stand. Lord, these are your hands today, and Lord, I give you my hands, and Lord, I pray that you'll use them to reach out to someone today, that you can use me and allow me to be your hands and your arms reaching out to somebody who desperately needs to be loved. Lord, these are your ears and Lord, today I yield my ears to you. I will only listen to those things that will bring honor and glory to your name, that will exalt you. Lord, these are your eyes. Help me today to look on things that do not dishonor you and things that bring shame and bring sin into my life, those corridors into my heart. Oh, God, help my eyes to be yielded to you. Oh, God, today I yield myself fully and wholly surrendering to you and you do it every single day sometimes you do it minute after minute after minute isn't that what romans is talking about romans chapter six by the way before you go do anything with your body before you go do anything with your body you yield it first to god Romans chapter 6, verse 12, talking about we've been severed from the power of sin. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's talking about this physical body. Don't let sin reign in it, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not, here's the words, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present your members to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He goes down in verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are, the one sl you are that one slave? Or down in verse 19, I speak uh, in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, you're to present your members as slaves of righteousness. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You say, well, I'm looking for some ecstatic utterance to come out of my lips. That isn't going to happen, because that's not what the Bible teaches, regardless of what people emotionally are caused to do on occasion. 
spirit-filled life is a life where you've yielded your body. You've presented the members of your body, and you said, Lord, I'm just a vessel. You are the fuel in this vessel that powers this vessel and does with it what you want done with it. And Lord, this is not my body. I don't get to do with my body what I want to do with my body. I yield my body to you. Number two, if you're going to be a spirit-filled, spirit-taught, spirit-led, spirit-inspired person, you surrender yourself to God. Secondly, you serve his purposes daily. You serve his purposes daily. Lord, today, I'm, I'm yours. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to say? Who do I need to interact with? Whose life can be changed today? Lord, I want to fulfill and live out your purpose. We spend all of our time, moms and dads, I'm over time, so just stick with me. This is coming from the depths of my heart. My daughter said, she said, Dad, they won't mind you if you quit early today. (laughs) That's true. You won't mind, but God might mind. Moms and dads, we spend all of our times teaching our children, go after your dreams, go for your dreams. What do you want to do? Go be what you want to be. You can be anything you want to be. And there's nothing wrong with some of that encouragement. But let me ask you a question. Why aren't we teaching our children to say, Lord, what do you want to do with me? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to do through me? How do you want to use me? And number three, Share the hope of Jesus with others. You want to be a spirit-filled, spirit-taught, spirit-led, spirit-empired person? You surrender yourself to God. You serve his purposes daily, and you share the hope of Jesus with others. Can I ask you a question? In the book of Acts, in the New Testament church, after it was born into existence, And it says they were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Do you know what follows it? And they spoke boldly the Word of God. Being filled with the Spirit means I get up every day and I say, Lord, I'm yours today. I surrender my my body as instruments, the different members of my body as instruments of righteousness to you. Lord, I'm here to serve your purposes. You didn't put me in my neighborhood. You didn't put me in my job. You didn't put me in the school. You didn't put me in this or that just for me to be able to enjoy myself, and that's all there is to it. You put me there to enjoy myself, but to be your instrument, to be your missionary in that circumstance. Lord, I'm here to serve your purposes so that I can share the good news of Jesus with confidence and with boldness that changes people's lives.